Tonight's sermon uh, is on the holiness of God. You, uh, if you've been here this summer, you know that we've been doing uh, a series through the attributes of God in our evening sermon series. And tonight is the last night. I hope you uh, noticed and picked up a book. Uh, just, just want it put out there that when uh, Kevin Phipps preaches, you don't get a book. But there are books out in the uh, lobby. They are um, shorter versions of R.C. Sproul's classic work, uh, The Holiness of God, uh, really the, the uh, best treatise, in my opinion, on this topic. So please pick that up. Uh, those, are, those are free for you. Um, the word holiness... I think can be a little bit hard to wrap our minds around. So I want us to think together first about what the word means as it relates to God, and then think about what the fact that God is holy means for humanity, means for us. Um, in Sproul's work, Holiness of God, he points out uh, that holiness is the only attribute of God that the Bible raises to a superlative degree. Now, in, in modern electronic writing, we have really honed the art of emphasis in a text. We, we have boldface, we have italics, we have underlines in our word processors, and in our texting and our other kinds of shorter messages, we've even taken to drawing little pictures with the punctuation marks to alter the emotional tone of our message. Uh, your late period is a different message than your late smiley face, isn't it? Right? Uh, in the ancient world, uh, in order to give emphasis, you didn't have all of these, these different creative ways to do it. Um, so in the Bible, when emphasis uh, is, is, the author is trying to give emphasis to a concept, that, that concept is repeated. Um, think about the beginning of Galatians. Paul wants the Galatian church to know that justification by faith alone is the doctrine on which the Christian stands or falls. And he says... If we, or anyone, even an angel from heaven, preach to you a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I tell you again, if we, or anyone, even an angel from heaven, preach to you a gospel other than the one we preach, let him be accursed. He, Paul here is trying to say, if you hear nothing else in what I'm telling you, hear that this is significant. He's trying to add this huge emphasis through repetition. What Sproul points out in his book is that uh, there is only one attribute of God that is raised to a third degree. Uh, of all the words used to describe God, only one is repeated three times in a row, holy, holy, holy. It's not repeated once, but twice. It's not just emphasized, it's essentialized. 
what is God? What is the most important adjective that the Bible uses to describe God? God is holy, holy, holy. Notice, he is not love, love, love. He is not almighty, almighty, almighty. He is not just, just, just. He is holy, holy, holy. He is those other things. Those other things, of course, uh, can be and are said of him, but it is only his holiness that the Bible draws this double underline, caps lock, bold, italicized, circled in red pen. The Bible wants us to know this is true of God. Now, if you're anything like me, you, you hear that and you agree, but you think to yourself, but I don't necessarily understand what the word itself means. It's easier to talk about the holy objects in the temple. They are set apart for God's use. They are special and for God, the holy censers and the holy bowls. That makes sense. Those are the holy things of God. That's a part of the meaning of holiness, uniqueness, set-apartness, otherness. Uh, the New Testament calls believers in Christ saints, which just means holy ones. It's a little trickier to understand when the Bible uses the word holy about people. It still mainly means set apart for God's purposes. But the Bible also tells us that we are to be holy as he is holy, as God is holy. This means more than be different like he is different. It means we are to be morally pure as he is morally pure. The holiness of God refers both to his transcendent otherness and his transcendent moral purity. He is different from the world. He is uncorrupted by sin. He is unstained by any hint of evil. He is infinitely pure, and as such, he is infinitely deserving of praise and infinitely undeserving of dishonor. No one deserves to be sinned against or dishonored less than God does interesting to note that God's holiness is the thesis, the basic idea of the songs that are sung by the angels in God's presence. I want to look at those songs and the passages uh, where the Bible talks about those visions that both Isaiah and John had of the throne room of God, and hopefully we'll, we'll get a, a good sense through those uh, accounts in the Bible of what it means that God is holy. Uh, first, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 6. You can open your uh, copy of the Word of God with me to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 to 7. Before we read God's Word, we're also going to read in Revelation um, chapter 4, but before we read God's word, I want us to pray together. So let's pray. 
Father, we give thanks that we can draw this day to a close by meditating on your holy word. We ask that you would help me to give the sense of it, help all of us to listen to it, to internalize it, to put it into practice in our lives, help us to submit to it, understanding that these words uh, in this book are your voice from heaven. Thank you that you have condescended to speak to us. We pray that you give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 6. This is Isaiah's vision of the throne room of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Now, this experience that Isaiah has is so incredible that he feels he needs to start off his retelling of the vision with some historical grounding. Visions in the Bible are highly symbolic and the images in Isaiah's vision are meant to demonstrate some important truths to us about God. First, God is seated on a high and lifted up throne. What does this signify? It signifies that God is King of kings and Lord of lords. The throne from which he reigns sits above, high above, all other things high above anyone else's throne. He is the ruler of all creation, and he is sovereign over all things. Second, notice that the train of his robe fills the temple. The temple in Jerusalem, built by Solomon, the house for God, quote-unquote, does not contain God in any way. Unlike other tribal gods, like of the Canaanites, who lived in temples made by man and thus could be contained and controlled by the men, the Lord has condescended to allow a small part of his glory to be in the temple. And not even a part of him is contained in the temple. His presence is there, but it's just the end of his robes. And it is too much the end of his robes, the glory of even that small part is too much for the great temple of Solomon 
to contain. Third, notice the seraphim, these angels who attend to him in his presence, are symbolically shown to be unable to do two things. First, they are unable to look at God. And second, they are unable to stand on the same ground with God. These angels have six wings so that their eyes will be shielded from seeing God's majesty and so that their feet do not touch the holy ground on which God walks. Surely, surely this is, again, all figurative language. God is spirit. He doesn't have feet. But what we're meant to see in this concept is that where God is, there is this magnificent, terrifying, awesome otherness. You can't be where he is and survive. Even the angels who were created for this purpose the purpose of being in his presence and attending to him must guard themselves in his presence. Fourth, think about the song of worship that they sing. It has two stanzas, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. The first stanza refers to God as the Lord of hosts, as Yahweh of hosts. This title refers to his military might. He is the God of the angel armies. He is the God who can win every battle. He is unchallenged and unchallengeable. The second stanza says that the whole earth is filled with his glory. Everything in the earth reflects God's glory. Every mountain, every ocean, every law of physics, every creature demonstrates his glory somehow. Those who love him and those who hate him both still demonstrate his glory. You can see his goodness, his transcendence, and his sovereignty literally everywhere. Let's look at the immediate reaction of Isaiah because it is also significant. What is his response to seeing this awesome sight? It is to fall on his face in terror. Why? Isaiah immediately and instinctively recognizes his own unworthiness. This response of the human heart, the response of the human heart when confronted with the majesty and holiness of God, is to be broken. Isaiah sees the authority and grandeur of God, the infiniteness and the otherness of God, the transcendence and moral purity of God, and he is undone. His heart melts. Immediately when we come face to face with the holiness of God, the one thing we know is that he is different than we are. He is better. He is greater. He is purer. Imagine the terrible feeling you, you might get when you come face to face in some sort of circumstance with a, a problem or, or, or something that you just cannot handle, you just cannot fix, and you simply must give up in the face of it. Isaiah's sense of self, sense of who he is is dropped in the middle of an ocean and there's nothing to, to grab onto. 
Notice, though, that he does try and grab on to something. He says, I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I think this means that the first thing he thinks is, okay, I'm terrible, but aren't I a part of God's holy people? That, maybe that's a ground on which I could stand before God, being a member of God's holy people. Doesn't my heritage qualify me to stand justified before a holy God? I can't think of, I can't help but think of Jesus' words to the Pharisees in Matthew 3. He says, do not presume to, your say, to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Your connection to the people of God in no way qualifies you to stand before God. What does qualify you to stand before God? Only the sovereign and atoning work of Christ on your behalf. Here in this story signified by the coal touching the sinful lips. Notice that the mediating angel here does not say your sins are overlooked or your sins are forgotten. No, your sins are atoned for. What is needed to stand in before the blazing holiness of God without wilting away is an atonement for your sins. You will never stand justified before God on the grounds of your personal holiness, and you will never stand justified before God on your association, on the grounds of your association with a holy people. You stand before God on the basis of your union with Christ by faith and for no other reason. Let's look at the, uh, the very similar scene in the book of Revelation. It was very cool to me as I prepared for this sermon to notice how similar these two accounts are in uh, now in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 4 uh, we'll just read verse 8 John also is having a vision of the throne room of God and he describes seeing six winged angels who are singing a very very similar song he calls them the four living creatures he explains more detail about them they are around the exalted throne singing uh, this song. Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The song that they sing here is slightly different in emphasis but it's pretty much the same. Here they declare that the Lord is almighty. In the previous song, they said, uh, they described him as the Lord of hosts. He's omnipotent in his military might. Here, they describe his omnipotence. He is um, almighty. And in the second stanza, in Isaiah's song, it said, the whole earth is full of his glory. But here, the song expresses his omnipresence 
in a temporal sense. God was yesterday, he is today, and he will be tomorrow. So the other song expressed that he was everywhere. The whole earth is full of his glory. This song expresses that he was everywhere. Perhaps more accurately, we should say, he was Almighty God yesterday. He is Almighty God today, and he will be Almighty God tomorrow. And just as in Isaiah, the response to this song and revelation is a great outpouring of abasement and worship. Just as Isaiah did, this time the 24 elders who are symbolically the most significant people within both the old and new covenant people of God, 12 for the 12 tribes and 12 for the 12 apostles, disciples. These, the most important figures of the faith, in Revelation 4, cast down their importance at the foot of the throne of God, saying, like the Apostle Paul, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. The only hope that we have when we stand in the presence of God's immense, incredible, and infinite holiness is our union with Christ by faith. God is uh, transcendently pure and different, so much so that to face him head-on immediately will put us in mind of our own smallness, insufficiency, and unworthiness, and when we actually face God, the only response is awe, fear, and need for mercy. I want to switch gears here and offer you three things that, three implications, I think, from the truth that is presented to us here in these these two songs, these two passages, three things that God's holiness means for us. First, God's holiness means that the universe has a moral order. God's holiness, in fact, is the underlying moral structure of the universe. He is, his transcendent moral purity is the sorry, is the ontological positive that is logically necessary for the concepts of right and wrong. Here's what that means. Good and bad only have intelligible meaning in relation to God's character. Think about it. The things that humans universally regard as morally good, kindness, mercy, charity, etc., are just descriptive terms for God's character. I was a philosophy major in college, and I took an ethics class in which they uh, laughed off the idea that 
you could derive ethics from God. Uh, they told us you can't say something is good or bad because God says so, because that means that good is arbitrary. From their perspective, if God gets to decide between good and bad, then he could just pick anything, and the, the concept of good and bad is meaningless. As if God just wakes up one morning in a bad mood and says, all right, no more adultery. Those dummies down there have been having a little too much fun. From now on, gossip is off limits. No, good is good not merely because of the act of God speaking or because he wakes up one day and makes a decision. Good is good because it reflects his character. He gives these commands because of who he is. Morality has its weight not because some strange and powerful being decide to toy with us, but because he, a loving, merciful, and all-knowing creator desires us to be holy as he is holy. My philosophy professor's critique uh, does work if you're talking about the Greek gods in the myths who run around and sin against each other and don't have any, uh, any of the consistency that the God of the Bible has. Uh, frankly, it also works if you're talking about the God of Islam, who the Quran describes as capricious, saying one thing today and another thing tomorrow. But the God of the Bible is not this way. He is the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. The love of the God of the Bible does not change. His word is kept, and his justice is sure. Little digression. It isn't just the fact that the moral order of the universe exists. That's true, but it's also true that everyone on the inside knows that it does. Regardless of whether or not they will admit it, everyone knows good and evil enough to know that their heart does not actually qualify as good. Everyone by nature understands that there is a way things should be, and everyone knows in their nature, in their, in their hearts, that this world is broken. Every religious system, every worldview attempts to explain and solve this. In fact, every religious system uh, attempts to solve this in some form of using some form of human effort. The natural state of every human is to innately understand the moral brokenness of the world and desperately seek out some way to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Desperately seek out some way to fix this brokenness. God's holiness, do you see, God's holiness casts a shadow over fallen humanity that is impossible to escape. The glorious truth is that it isn't because of anything that you do that you are saved, but, by, but you are saved by something that Christ has done. You don't fix the brokenness, but God in Christ has fixed it. If we trust in him, we are made right. Like Isaiah, we can stand before God without fear because of what Christ has accomplished 
on our behalf. Second, God's holiness means that Christ's death was necessary. Think, think with me on this one. This is how I explain it in the kids' membership class. Uh, so if you were in my membership class, sorry, you, you've heard this one before. Um, you're all familiar with the mathematical concept of infinity. Infinity minus one is infinity. You're a good Presbyterian church, you don't answer. Two times infinity is, thank you. Well, God is infinitely holy, infinitely pure, and our sin is like multiplying times that infinity. Maybe a lie is worth negative five and murder is worth negative a thousand. But when you multiply the value of sin, you do the sin that you do against the infinite purity of God, what comes out of the equation is an infinite debt that you owe. Every lie produces an infinite debt. Every word of gossip, every lustful thought because this is a sin against an infinitely holy God. Remember I said no one deserves to be sinned against less than God. And God cannot simply excuse your sin. It's a real offense. It's an insult to his holiness to say, uh, as some religious uh, traditions say, that no atonement is needed for your sin. As if God just says, well, it's okay that you messed up. I'll just overlook it. God doesn't overlook sin. That's an insult to his holiness. The wages of sin is death. Your death. Your blood. Mine. In fact, because your sin is against the infinite purity of God, it can never be fully paid for by you. The infinity of the one you sinned against means that the punishment that you will receive for that sin will be of an infinite degree. It means that every sin is an infinite offense deserving infinite wrath and punishment. Left in your sin, you will simply experience the suffering of death perpetually forever. His wrath cannot be exhausted because sin is an offense against his infinite purity. This is a, a very hopeless uh, equation I've just laid out before you, and the glorious truth I hope you can already begin to see is if that's true of us, we are lost in our sin, we are lost under this infinite uh, wrath, unless God, in his infinite wisdom and amazing mercy, has ordained that you could be united with someone by faith who could accept the punishment on your behalf. Now, it can't be a sheep, it can't be a goat, because they don't carry the image of God, they can't satisfy the perfect justice of God. The life of a bull is just not the same as the life of an image bearer. No, this propitious union must be with another human. But 
But unfortunately for us, all humans are finite. If I were to accept the punishment on your behalf, there's simply not enough of me to actually pay your debt. What is more, I already have my own infinite debt to pay because of my own sin. The math just does not work. Unless, somehow, the only infinite being in the universe, God himself, condescends to become a human and to die as the satisfaction for the wrath that we deserve. The only way out of this wrath is if a human being of infinite worth lives a perfect life and does not ever sin. And somehow, by some strange creative grace, because of his infinite worth, dying in our place, we are forgiven and our debt is paid. The incarnation, life, substitutionary death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is not only the only way of salvation for those who trust in him. It's not only the only way. It is the only way that anyone could have been saved. It's logically necessary. Third, this one will be more on the earth. God's holiness means that we must approach him with humility. This is what it means to be poor in spirit and inherit the kingdom of God. Because of who and what God is, transcendent, pure, without stain of sin, and who we are, we must come to him abased. We come to him not declaring our accomplishments, but begging for his mercy. We come before him knowing that we do not deserve his mercy, but we deserve his wrath. But the beauty of God's nature and the beauty of his holiness is that he does not reject those who come helpless and humble. He has mercy on the brokenhearted and the lowly in spirit. It's not the righteous he came to save, but sinners. So when we call out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because of who he is, because of who he is unchangeable, because of the supremely holy love that characterizes him, he will not turn us away. He will respond with mercy, not based on who we are or what we have done or who we are connected with, but based on who he is. He is different from us. He is transcendent in his holiness, and he is transcendent in his holy love and mercy for us. The holiness of God means that his holy love is unlike any other love on earth. It's unlike love that you and I would show to one another. It's unconditional. 
His love for his people is perfect in faithfulness. His love for his people is pure. He is holy, holy, holy. He is transcendently different and morally pure. And that means that his love for us is better than anything else in the universe. The gospel proves that he is not only the origin of love, and the goal and purpose of love, but he is the best exemplar of love. For God shows his love for us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we see and comprehend the love of God for us in Christ, we, like Isaiah, throw ourselves down and say, to God, here am I, send me. I belong to you, use me in whatever way you see fit. I give myself to you, my life to you as a living sacrifice. When we see and comprehend the holy love of God for us in Christ, we throw down our crowns, our accomplishments, our worldly glory at the foot of the throne, and we say, I count everything as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Precisely because of his transcendent moral purity, he will be true to his promise and bring us to himself in Christ. The holiness of God means that we have absolutely no hope left to ourselves. But it also means that in Jesus Christ we have every hope. We have the surest hope. That's all. Let's pray. O Lord, whom have we in heaven but you? There is nothing on the earth that we desire besides you. Our flesh and our hearts may fail, but you are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. Lord, we humbly come before you and we praise you for your mercy that you have shown to us in Christ. We acknowledged, acknowledge that we have deserved your wrath and that we have sinned against you. We rejoice, oh Lord, we rejoice in the grace of the gospel. We ask that you would accept our lives as living sacrifices, given over to showing your great worth to the world around us, given over to worship. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.